Well, church, it's a uh, pleasure to be here with you today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 5, verses 19 to 47. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd implore you to turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one in the seat back in front of you. You're going to get the most out of this message if you have a Bible open in your lap. And so while you turn to John chapter 5, I'd love to share a story with you. Many, many years ago, it uh, came time for my wife and for my in-laws to sell the house that they lived in. Now, our realtor at the time had uh, set up a time and a date at his office with a potential buyer to come and to meet my wife and to meet my in-laws and to finalize the sale of their home. So on that day, it just so happened that my wife arrived early on her own, and the receptionist at the front desk asked her to take a seat in the waiting area. But it also so happened that the family who wanted to purchase the home also came in not long after her, and they sat in the very same waiting area, waiting for the realtor. Now, without hesitation, this family started to openly discuss what they were going to offer on the house, how they're going to haggle all the strategies that they're going to use to bargain, try and get a better deal. Now, you see, they didn't assume, even for a minute, that the young lady sitting in the lobby with them could have anything to do with the sale of the house. Now, my wife tells me that she felt awful about this, and she wanted to interject, uh, but it wasn't long before the receptionist came out again and uh, called him into the negotiating room. And it was at that moment that the other side's faces became flushed, red with embarrassment, uh, because they were utterly shocked. Now, you see, the point of this is they did not recognize the authority of the person sitting in the room. If they had known that my wife was one of the homeowners, uh, they would have acted completely differently in that moment. And uh, the good news is they still ended up buying the house, and I think they got a good deal, but I'm sure that's a memory that they're not going to easily forget. And so what I want to point out, the, the principle of this story is really the importance, the importance of recognizing authority. And that's going to be where our passage starts off today. See, many people, including the Pharisees, including the other religious leaders, they simply did not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And a failure to recognize authority can have terrible consequences. And so that's why this issue of authority, it really is so crucial in our lives, I believe. And so today in John chapter 5, verses 19 to 47, you're going to see three ways that Jesus Christ is recognized as the supreme authority which should cause you to grow in your faith and in your obedience to him. We're going to start off by reading verses 19 to 30. I'm going to ask if you could please stand with us as we read God's holy word. This is John chapter 5, verses 19 to 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead who will will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You may take your seats, church. Now, as we begin, uh, I think it's important for us to understand the context of today's message. Jesus, earlier in this chapter, has just healed the paralytic man on the Sabbath. And there is a big, big uproar about this, especially with the religious leaders of the time. Uh, You see, they had accused Christ of doing what is unlawful. Uh, And in fact, they weren't just upset. They were enraged because Jesus is claiming to be equal to God. If you look back in your Bibles, verses 17 and 18, Jesus answered them here. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so our text today begins with Jesus responding to them And in fact, doubling down on the truth here, he's giving them more evidence. He's giving them evidence that shows that God is indeed his father and that Jesus is indeed the ultimate authority equal with God. And so we're going to start off by looking at verses 19 to 24. That's our first major point here for today. We're going to see Christ's authority over life. Jesus begins by establishing at the very beginning that he does nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees God the Father doing. He establishes his authority here, I believe, by looking first at his source of authority. And so the Son of God receives authority from the Father, obeys him perfectly, and executes his will perfectly. One author says this, Jesus would have to be God in order to do this perfectly. What mere man can obey God perfectly at all times? Because you see, Jesus is saying here that it is impossible for him to act independently. He is perfectly carrying out the will of God the Father at every single moment of his life. And now church, this is something that, this is an intimacy with God that only God himself can claim. We as men and women cannot claim this. This is different from the rest of us. It's true that God does choose to reveal some things to us, but not all things. If you listen uh, to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, verses 8 to 9, listen to what Isaiah says here. He's speaking, this is God speaking here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so friends, I, uh, for you and I, for most of us, we barely know what's happening outside this church building. We barely know what's going to happen even this afternoon or tonight. 
So for Christ to claim here that he is always being shown by God the Father what God is doing, of course, of course this is an outrageous claim to the religious leaders unless Christ is actually divine. Now look back at your Bibles, verses 20 to 21. He goes on to say, And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, church, we have a great benefit. We have this benefit of having our Bibles with us here by looking back in history at all that Christ has done. But you have to understand this, that for the people living in those times, and specifically in this discourse here, they had yet to see all of Christ's miracles. They had yet to see him feed the 5,000. They had yet to see him appear to the disciples on a stormy sea. He had yet to heal the man born blind. He had yet to show his authority over life itself by the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 from the dead. And finally, his own glorious resurrection on the cross, perhaps the greatest miracle of all. And so you see, God here had no need to show them anything. And I think it's important for us to remember, lest for a moment we think that somehow God owes us evidence. He doesn't. But out of his loving and kind nature, God openly shows wretched and sinful man his divinity and his power. And why does he do that? Look back at your text. So that you may marvel. And I really think that when he says that there, it goes back to the purpose statement of John in chapter 20, which is simply that you may believe. That you may believe. Look at verse 21. Christ reveals to his enemies here that he has given the power of God over life. That's what he's been given. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son will give life to whom he will. Now, church, the power to give life is something that only God can do. In fact, even when Jesus heals people throughout the Gospels, this is a display of that same life-giving power. I believe the reason why murder, for example, in part, why it's such a terrible crime is because you and I do not have the authority to take another person's life. The authority over life is a divine responsibility. Some of you may recall the story in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is when King Jehoram of Israel he receives a letter from Naaman the leper, who's a commander of an army. And King Jehoram tears his clothes in sorrow. And he says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? And so you see, King Jehoram understands that only God has authority over life. Only God can heal. The Jews would have understood this Old Testament context. Keep looking at your Bibles, verse 22. For as the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. And so church deeply connected to the authority over life is also the authority to judge. See, the authority over life naturally leads to this authority to judge because man has an eternal soul. 
And so if God is able to grant life in this world, then he's also able to grant life in the kingdom to come. But the Father has given here, Christ tells us, the Son, the power to judge. And again, why? It's because in verse 23, he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Years ago, uh, when my grandfather was alive, I learned that he uh, worked for the Indian government as an international ambassador in tourism. And because of his job, he had traveled to many different places in the world, and he, his job was to promote tourism from India in those countries uh, to, to India and vice versa. Now, if he went somewhere and he wasn't well-received, how do you think the Department of Tourism in India would have responded? Not well. And so you see, my whole point in that story is if someone is sent as a representative, but you don't honor them, then you dishonor the very people sending them as well. In the same way, you cannot claim to honor God unless you honor Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod Agrippa, he puts on royal robes in this moment. For those that aren't familiar with this, he puts on royal robes and he comes out and he's happy to see a crowd that is shouting him praise. He gives them a great public speech, and they shout to him. They say, the voice of a God, not of a man. And an angel of the Lord immediately strikes him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God says, I am Jehovah. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another. And so you see, God does not share his glory with men. And so when Christ claims here that God the Father desires him to be honored just as the Father is, either that is blasphemy or it is true. There is no middle ground. The truth is that Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father are equal with one another. He goes on in verse 24. Look at your Bibles with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so why? Why is Christ displaying his authority like this? It's because whoever hears his word and believes that God the Father has sent him has eternal life. At the moment that you trust in Christ, his life-giving power, his authority gives you new life. You're born again. All of your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. But you also have eternal life in the age to come. You need not fear upcoming judgment. And that's because Christ himself is also the judge. And that really brings us now to our second major point. We've seen Christ's authority over life. I want to look at verses 25 to 30 now, where we're going to see Christ's authority to judge. We slightly touched on this earlier, but verses 25 to 30, look at your Bibles with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Church, Jesus says that an hour is coming, and is now also here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and that those who hear will live. But what does this mean? See, on one hand, he talks about an hour coming, but he also talks about a time that is here right now. And so how is that possible? Jesus here is speaking, I believe, of two time periods simultaneously. As I said earlier, the moment that you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, Ephesians chapter 2 that we read earlier today, tells us that you have moved from death to life. And so that's the first time period. That's here right now. Your new spiritual life is given to you by God's Holy Spirit, which comes to reside in you the second that you trust in Jesus Christ. The second time period is this. It is a future moment in history, a future resurrection, an hour coming when the dead will rise physically. And I believe that this is a promise for a future physical resurrection of all mankind. I want you to hold on to that concept for a second. We're going to get back to that. Let's look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus Christ has life in himself just as God the Father does. And I want you guys to know this, this is a doctrine, for those who are interested, this is a doctrine known as the aseity of God. And the whole point of it is this. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He's not dependent on anything else. It's an essential attribute of who he is. And so therefore, for the religious leaders at the time, if they see that Christ is claiming this for himself, then this is another claim to his divine authority. Though Christ was born in human flesh, he has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and God was the word. The word was God, excuse me. But remember, I want you to remember this. You remember how I mentioned that life and judgment, these two concepts are, are closely tied. As you read through the scriptures, both of these concepts, you'll see them closely tied together. Look at verses 27 to 29. And he, that is God the Father, has given him, Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so church, this is where I think we need to understand our Old Testament and that's simply because the Old Testament makes up two-thirds of the entire Bible. And so if we don't have the Old Testament context, we can never truly understand the things that are being shown to us here. I believe that Jesus here is speaking to the Jews, specifically the religious Jewish leaders, and so he's referencing something that they would have known very well. He's quoting here from the prophet Daniel, who spoke of this future resurrection coming in human history. This is a time of the end, a final judgment for all mankind, a time in the future 
when all of us, all those who have died, would be raised again in new physical bodies. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt or disgrace. And so Jesus here is saying that he is the final judge of Israel and the Jewish leaders, but he's also the final judge of all mankind. Scripture tells us that it is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. That's Hebrews chapter 9. It also tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so for the non-believer here today, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ, then friend, this is your time right now to settle with the judge. You see, when Christ came and died for our sins, he offered us the free gift of eternal life. We simply need to turn and believe in him. When Jesus refers to himself in these passages, he actually uses two titles. If you look at verse 25, he calls himself here the son of God. But in verse 27, he calls himself the son of man. Now, why is that important, church? The son of man speaks of a perfect man, the anointed one, the one who God has sent according to the prophet Daniel, the perfect sinless man from God who's coming to establish an everlasting kingdom. And in fact, the Jewish leaders would have associated this with the coming Messiah. The Messiah is the only perfect man who can fully represent mankind before God. And so friends, Jesus here is this perfect man. He's fully human, just like you and me. He lived the perfect life that you and I could have never lived, and he never sinned, not even once. On the other hand, in verse, 20, verse 25, the Son of God, why does he use that term? And I think he uses that term because it highlights Jesus' divine nature. It highlights his connection to God. It speaks of his divinity and of this unique relationship to God, his Father. And so, yes... Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. The theological term for this is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Christ fully God, fully man. So those who trust in Christ and in his work upon the cross will come out to that resurrection of life that he quotes in verse 29. But those who do not trust in Christ come out to everlasting judgment, forever underneath God's wrath in a very real place called hell. See, you cannot enter into heaven without having your sins forgiven. When you get to the judgment seat, it will be too late. It's by the immeasurable, immeasurable grace of God that in his everlasting and steadfast love, Jesus came to save us. And so that's why, friend, if you haven't made this choice as yet, right now, this is the moment to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's how one day you will have this resurrection of eternal life and pass from judgment because of your sins. Look back at verse 30 at your Bibles with me again. Christ goes on. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, church, when Jesus judges, it is perfect. He doesn't miss any of the facts, because he does nothing on his own, and he seeks the perfect will of the Father who sent him. 
Here for us in Canada, if you, uh, depending on your case, if you disagree with a court decision, you might appeal to the provincial court, or if it's serious enough, you might appeal to the federal court, or if it's really serious enough, you might appeal to the Supreme Court. But Christ here is saying that he is the final, he is the ultimate judge. There is no chance of error. He always casts perfect and just judgment in accordance with the will of God the Father, who sees all and who knows all. And so now, having seen Christ's authority over life, having seen Christ's authority to judge, I want to move on here to our final point. I want to seek four witnesses that Christ shows us to his authority. Four witnesses that Christ now gives us to his authority. We're going to touch on each of these. Look at your Bibles, verses 31 to 35. The very first witness he shows us is John the Baptist. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. According to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 19, in Jewish law, something could only be testified to as the truth if it had a minimum of two witnesses, preferably three. And so Jesus here actually gives us four witnesses. Christ is presenting these religious leaders with evidence. This is almost like a legal case going on. He's showing us evidence after evidence after evidence. And so the first witness, as I said, is John the Baptist. We're not going to get into the entire life of John the Baptist, but here's the summary that you should know. John was a man. He was sent from God. His life was prophesied 700 years before he was born. The prophet Isaiah spoke of his coming as a forerunner to Christ. John was known as this voice crying in the wilderness, urging people to repent, to prepare the way for the Lord. And so his entire life, he was pointing everyone to Jesus Christ, saying, behold the Lamb of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so John pointed everyone towards Christ. I think there's really much more to do with John's life, and, and we've covered that previously in our sermon series. And so if you haven't seen it as yet, I would, I would encourage you to go back into our series. But long story short here, John was a divinely sent prophet, and he testified to Jesus' divinity and his identity as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. In verse 34, Jesus goes on to say, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things to you, that you may be saved. And so frankly, church, even though John spent his entire life, his whole life preaching about the coming of Christ, and this need to repent, Jesus doesn't need John's testimony, because he doesn't need testimony from men. And so then why does he share it? Why does Jesus even bring this up? Because of verse 34, so that you may be saved. You see, this is the love of Jesus Christ, that even in the midst of their unbelief, Christ shares the testimony of John so that we may understand and believe who he is in order to be saved. Now I'm going to move on here to the next witness. The next witness, you find them in verse 36. 
But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so if you don't believe in the authority of Christ based on John the Baptist's witness, Jesus says then that you should believe in a greater testimony, the testimony of his own works, his own miracles given to him by God the Father to accomplish. Now, uh, a few months ago, a friend of mine, he sent me a short video. And it's a video of a man who looks just like a normal guy, but he goes to the gym dressed up as a janitor. He wears a custodian uniform and he goes around to these super muscular guys and he tells them that they're lifting the weights wrong. Now these guys get upset at him because he doesn't look like he can lift even half their weight. Each of these men are probably 250 pounds of muscle or more. And so they laugh at him. But then he ends up putting them to shame by lifting those incredible amounts of weight far more easily than they can. Their jaws drop to the floor. You see, what they don't know is that this man is secretly an elite power lifter. He's not actually the gym custodian. And so why do I share that example with you? My point is this. Someone can talk the talk, but when they walk the walk, you know what they are all about. When they see that guy, when they see him lifting the weights, they recognize his authority based on his works. It's the same principle. And so if I told the same thing, if I told you I could swim, but you threw me in a pool and I couldn't tread water, well, then the proof is in the pudding. In the same way, that's why I bring up that silly example. I want to show you here that what Jesus is saying is look at what he has done. Based on what Christ has done, you should believe in his authority. His works show who he really is. He is the son of God. No man can do what Christ did He healed the sick, he turned water into wine, he provided food for the thousands, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he himself was raised after being crucified. And so Jesus' works provide witness to his authority, and they verify that he indeed is sent by God the Father. I want to go on to our third witness, which is simply this, God the Father himself. Let's read verses 37 to 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so now Christ gives us the next witness, which is God the Father. But how? How does God the Father provide witness to Christ? There is much debate over this passage. If you look it up, there's there's lots of different views on this. And it's really because God the Father works in a multitude of ways. But it's my belief that the way being referenced here is simply this. It is the providence of God. And so that doesn't just mean provision in the sense of food or shelter, but really God's providence encompasses his sovereign hand, how he cares for, how he sovereignly orders and allows things in this world. And so I think we see God's providential hand throughout the life of Christ. We see him leading Christ in all that he does, whether it's Christ's miraculous virgin birth, whether it's God leading Joseph and Mary to escape Herod, whether it's Jesus being born in Bethlehem, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, whether it's him being raised in Nazareth, or even Isaiah 53, which the Jewish leaders would have known that foretell the suffering servant and the events of Jesus' life. So God's providential hand throughout history has led to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, fulfilling a multitude of prophecies. 
The Jews also believe that God is able to control the events of history because they understand his sovereign hand. And yet, yet, Christ says they do not have God's word abiding in them because they do not believe the one who God has sent. And so the scriptures tell us that Jesus, Jesus is this perfect embodiment of God and human flesh. Remember Colossians 2.9, it says, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The image of the invisible Father made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, by the religious leaders here rejecting Christ, they know not the Father's witness either. And then lastly, the Lord goes on and he gives us now the final witness to his authority, which is the testimony of the scriptures themselves. We're going to see this quickly in verses 39 to 47. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, church, the religious leaders at the time thought that by intensely studying the scriptures that somehow their religious devotion or their knowledge would grant them eternal life. But you see, they missed the point. The main purpose of your Bible, the main purpose of the scriptures is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were willing to receive false prophets because they wanted their own God. They wanted their own version of Jesus. But ultimately, the leaders here, we can tell, they wanted their own kingdom. They wanted their own version of their God serving them instead of them being the one to serve the one true God and his kingdom. And so I think if we're not careful, church, the same exact thing can happen to us today. Do we want the Jesus of the Bible do we want the Jesus who will make us healthy, wealthy, wise, and serve all of our own desires? You see, the real Jesus calls us to repent, to carry our crosses. The real Jesus will challenge you to turn from your sin, to give up the things of this world and follow him. And so have you been recognizing the authority of Christ? Have you been following him above everything else? Verse 44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so the religious leaders here, you see, they're seeking glory. They're seeking recognition from one another. But Christ is saying that their wrong motives actually prevent them from believing. He knows their wicked hearts. He knows their desire for their own glory. They instead should have been seeking to receive glory from above. Verse 45, do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who, you, who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
The religious leaders thought that by hoping in Moses, that by following Moses' teaching, by fervently knowing the law, by their legalism, and also by being from the physical line of Abraham, they thought that they knew God and they would have guaranteed inheritance into the kingdom. But they missed the point. Jesus says here that they have a false hope in Moses because Moses' teachings all point to him. And again, they couldn't see it. So if they didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't truly believe in Moses' words either. And so that's the final witness given to us, the witness of the scriptures themselves, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written through the Old Testament prophets. And so church, that's what we see today. We see the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. We see his authority over life. We see his authority to judge. And we see his authority testified to by at least four witnesses. Now, I do want to show you one last thing. And so I want you to look up at the screen with me, if you will. Just take a moment here and look at all of the evidence presented to us. I'm not going to go through each and every single point on there. But if you look at all of the evidence presented to us in just what we read here today, this is the evidence of Christ's divine authority in just these verses alone. So church, Christ is, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. There's so much proof that the authority of Jesus Christ simply cannot be denied. He is equal to God and he is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. Fully God, fully man. And so as our message comes to an end, um, I want to exhort us to apply this to our lives. Uh, This week, I'll tell you one last quick story. This week I went to our uh, youth and young adults intern. His name is Justin Barnes. And I asked him, I said, Justin, what does it mean to you that Jesus is the supreme authority over everything? And he gave me such an encouraging response, church, that I wanted to share it with you today, with with his permission, of course. He said, Mihir, what the scriptures have to say should be applied in every facet of my life, and there should be nothing else competing for its place. And so you see, church, we need to apply God's word, God's will to every area of our life. Why? Because it's all Christ's anyways. You see, your kids, they aren't yours. Your money, it's not yours. Your body is not yours. Your job is not yours. Everything falls under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the day, for the believer, we are simply stewards we're simply stewards who's one day going to one day we're going to account to the highest authority. And so I want to ask you church, are you actively seeking to live in light of the authority of Jesus Christ? If not, then now is the time to turn, to repent, to submit to him and to walk in the obedience he desires. On that day when we see him, we want it to be said of each of us, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then lastly for the non-believer here today, I would urge you again, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect son of man, the divine son of God. You can begin today to recognize Christ's authority by recognizing that he is the one who lived and died for you to offer you this free gift of eternal life. And you can do that by accepting him personally today. Church, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the authority of Jesus Christ that we have seen in the text today. 
Father, I pray that all of us today, that you would help us to live in light of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Help us, Lord, to take every area of our lives and to submit it to your will. I pray, Father, that for those of us who know you here today, that you would help us to walk intimately with you. We don't do this perfectly, Lord, but this is the grace of God that we can simply turn to you and that we know with full assurance that if we have truly believed in Jesus Christ, then he died for our sins, past, present, and future. Father, for the non-believer here today, again, I pray that this indeed would be the day of salvation. Help them to understand the authority of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that they would settle now with the judge of judge, the king of kings, and that, Lord, they too would be able to inherit eternal life. We thank you for this day. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.